0: Good morning, everyone. My name's David. For those of you I haven't met yet, I'm not used to sitting, so I'm going to stand for this one. Um, Terry's away in the Molise, probably catching a wave as we speak. Uh, So it's my privilege this morning to be able to open up the Word of God for us. It's always hard when you come to preach these once-off sermons because you've got the whole Bible to choose from. So um, we're going to look at Psalm 51 this morning. And to kick us off, I want, to st- I want to start by sharing with you a story from my first year at university. The year was 2006, and it was my second day of my engineering degree. Uh, and I made a decision to do something that my father has always forbidden me from doing. You see, my dad, he's a, a doctor in Gunada, the land of opportunity where I grew up, koala capital of the world, and he's just seen way too many motorbike accidents to ever let me get near one. Right, So with my newfound sense of freedom and independence at uni and, and thinking I could do whatever I want, I decided I'm going to skip my second day of, of, of my degree and go out and uh, do some dirt bike jumping with some of my mates at Warners Bay in a quarry. Well, here I was. I'd just done my, landed my second dirt jump. I was feeling pretty good about myself. I came around to pass my mates and give them a bit of a wave, let them know everything's going well. But as I did that the front wheel washed out from underneath me and i came off over the handlebars and a few uh injuries later um and after 3 hours worth of surgery um my right wrist was broken in 8 different places and it's now made of metal so um i don't know what was worse whether it was the 10 to 12 months worth of rehab and now the only percent, 80% range of motion I have left back in my wrist or whether it was just eating humble pie and proving my dad right. I think it was the latter. Um, anyway, when I woke up in the recovery ward after the surgery, I remember clearly still, despite being high on post-anesthetic, I remember um, the orthopaedic surgeon, as he came around to do his uh, you know, checkups in the recovery ward, he, he came up to me and asked him, what did it look like inside my wrist? And he said, well, okay, it's uh, a first. <laughs> it looked like a jigsaw puzzle with lots of different little pieces. I just had to work out how to put them back together again. Now, as you would know, the surgeon, he couldn't start the operation on my wrist until he first cut open the wrist to expose all of the bone fragments to see the problem for what it was before he could start the healing process. He essentially had to open up the problem... See the problem for what it was before he could start to put it back together again. And you know, as we come to this psalm this morning, Psalm 51, I think we see a very similar image of brokenness, opening up and healing. This psalm is perhaps one of the most poignant, the most beautiful reflections of brokenness, of true confession that you will find anywhere in any literature. And it's my hope today that, uh, like myself, as I've poured over this chapter for a few weeks now, that we would all be brought to this place, like King David, of brokenness over our sin. Now I need to say that this talk this morning is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And and I really do mean that, because part of me feels like I have absolutely no right to be standing up here in front of this lecture and telling you all about your sin when I know how much I just don't get it right myself. So I just I want to preach this sermon to myself today and I want you all to listen in and hope that you too can learn about your own sin as it relates to your life. Alright, if you could open up your Bibles to Psalm 51 that Brad read out for us earlier. If you don't have a Bible, just sit there and look guilty. No, there's, there's plenty out the back. Um, while you flip there, let me take you to a time in History. The book of 2 Samuel says in chapter 11 that it was the springtime, the time when kings go off to war, and David, he sends the boys out. Now stop right here. That ought to make us question something. Why? Well, because King David was a warrior king. He made a name for himself through battles and victories and conquering his enemies on the battlefield. But for some particular reason, on this particular occasion, Dave stayed at home in Jerusalem. Now, many of us are familiar with this story, and we know that it was no coincidence that David stayed at home and didn't join his army. While his army was off fighting for the banner of Israel against the Amorites, David, one moonlit evening, just happened to go for a stroll on his palace roof, enjoying the evening air, no doubt. And while he was up there, his gaze just happened to fall on a lady who was bathing on her roof, and she was naked and her name is Bathsheba. And let me just say something, as a a bloke, being a guy, knowing a bit about guys myself, if I was to ever stumble across a beautiful naked lady, well, let me just say I would know that I would be in a very dangerous position because lust has a way of captivating us all. Because here's what we know, the strongest man in the Bible, the most godly man in the Bible, and the wisest man in the Bible all fell to sexual immorality. For me to stand there and say that I can withstand the urges or temptation is to say that i'm stronger than samson to say that i'm more godly than david and that i'm wiser than solomon and in case you're wondering i'm not if if the apostle paul had been present with david on that roof i have no doubt that he would have said to david as he did to the church in corinth flee Flee sexual immorality. It's a fire that if stoked will burn wildly and destroy everything in its path. And if you read the narrative of David's life, you'll see that it was never ever the same again after Bathsheba because he chose to yield to temptation and not flee. So David had Bathsheba brought to him where he seduced her or depending on your reading of the text, he raped her and she fell pregnant. Now this put the king in a bit of a bind, you see. Bathsheba was a married woman to a a guy called Uriah and he was a Hittite man who actually fought in David's army. And after some failed scheming, David ordered that Uriah be put to the front line of combat without support. The troops withdrew and he was cut down and killed. So David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then covered it up with premeditated murder in order that he might marry Bathsheba and legitimize the pregnancy. And the message here, I think, is one that so many of us can relate to. If at first your sin finds you out, then just keep on sinning to sin your way out of sin. It's like, you know, when you, when you tell a lie uh, and then somebody asks you about that and then you have to lie to cover up that original lie and it just it just keeps on going. And Samuel also tells us uh, that as a consequence of, of what David did with Bathsheba and Uriah, that the baby born to Bathsheba and David died as a result. But if my dear mother has taught me anything... And she's taught me much. It's that, David, your sins will always find you out. Or if Mrs. Dean's words of wisdom don't strike a chord with you, then heed what the Apostle Paul has to say. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man or woman sows, this he or she will also reap. And in the case of King David, he sure did. And it wasn't until 12 months later... There in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel that we find this famous confrontation between Nathan and King David. I don't think any confrontation in in history has ever been so brief yet so effective. Just four words. You are the man. Listen to this from 2 Samuel 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb which he had brought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveller came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So, David's anger was greatly aroused against this man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, as he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. That right there is David's self sentence. Because, verse 7, then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Just try and picture David's facial expression at that moment. His sin that was silent for a year that was heavy on his conscience, was finally exposed. His sins had found him out. Then God sent Nathan. I love that word. I think that's the most beautiful word in that whole passage, then. God's timing is so perfect. Nathan didn't come right after the adultery. He didn't come right after the pregnancy. He didn't come after David had killed Uriah. He didn't even come after the marriage. But he came 12 months later after the grinding wheels of sin had run their full course. Then God sent Nathan. And David's reply was the only right reply he could have had. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. I like to think it was that exact same night after Nathan had confronted David that David went off to his bedchamber to pen this psalm that we have written before us Psalm 51. As much we can learn about this chapter of confession, Um, but for the sake of time, as we read through this, I just really want to focus in on on sin, what sin is, how it affects us. And uh, I'm going to try and do this in five main points and hopefully have you out of here by lunchtime. The first point is that sin stains. Look here from verses 1 to 3. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Now just quickly, I want you to notice something straight up in this psalm. I think this is kind of the premise for the whole chapter. As I said, when I had the surgery on my wrist, before it could get fixed, the, f- the surgeon had to first cut open the wound and reveal it all with his scalpel in order to expose 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 the problem so that he could start to put it back together. So now spiritually, when it comes to this idea of brokenness over our sin, the question I want to ask is, what does the cutting? Well, look here at verses 1 and 2. I think David is cutting himself with the blades of, one, God's loving kindness, and two, God's tender mercies. You see, what David is essentially doing straight up in this psalm is he is wounding himself by reminding himself of the goodness and grace of God. He is appealing to God's character. He doesn't make the deep wound the final wound by looking at the law as a measuring stick or anything like that. No, instead, David is essentially saying that what makes my situation so grievous, so devastating, is not that I broke some rule in the laws of Moses, but that I abused the goodness of God's character. The very same thing that convicts David is the very same thing that assures him God's character. Did you also notice the use of verbs here blot out, wash me, cleanse me. David's basically saying the same thing three different ways, and he creates for us this powerful word picture. I mean, when do you wash something? When do you cleanse something? When it's dirty, when it's stained. What David is saying here, essentially, then, is that sin has stained him. Friends, sin stains. Sin stains you. We ought to be brought to this place of brokenness over our sins because we recognise what we bring upon ourselves. Every time you sin, you attach something to yourself, and that has consequences. There's stains on you. There's stains on me. You know, I have a mate who just can't go into the Westfield Katara shopping centre by himself because of the way girls dress themselves these days, because of the way past sexual immorality has stained him. And sin can stain us from generation to generation. Did you know that a child who has an alcoholic mother or father is more likely to grow up and be an alcoholic themselves? Did you know that a child who has been abused sexually at a young age is more likely to grow up and sexually abuse somebody themselves? Go figure that one. Sin stains us. It attaches something to us and that has consequence. We ought to be brought to this place of brokenness over our sin because sin stains. Look here at verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Remember, it's been a whole year since David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and he still says, my sin is always before me. He can't get it out of his mind. Do you have one of those sins from a year ago? from a decade ago, that you just can't get out of your mind, that's just on rerun over and over in your mind like a tape? You see, part of how sin stains us is that it creates a memory. You create a memory of something you've seen, of something you've done, of something that's happened to you. You create this memory, you have this snapshot in your mind, and you just can't get rid of it. You know, we just pray and pray and pray to God that he would cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. But the memories... They're still there. Those familiar smells, the mental pictures, the feelings of hurt, they don't disappear. Why? Well, frankly, that's not the way we humans have been designed. We're not goldfish. In fact, a person forgetting is actually a person malfunctioning. We have plenty of medical people in the room and just ask them. We have words for it, like Alzheimer's disease, or amnesia. And we really need to do away with these quaint sayings like forgive and forget, because guys, we were never called to forget. Forgive, absolutely. 77 times 7, which means just keep on forgiving. But forget, not so much. I love what author and pastor Dr. Voddy Barkham has to say about this. He says, we, we were not created to forget things, and that's good for at least two reasons. Firstly, because if you could forget your sin, you could never testify to the goodness of God in your life. You know, you have a testimony of the goodness of God in your life? Uh, I think I used to. It just, it's just, it's silly. And secondly, if you couldn't remember your sins, you wouldn't be warned against doing them again. He goes on to say, can you literally imagine if you forgot fire was hot? You'd just be walking around a bunch of crispy people. <laughs> David says here in verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me so what are you going to do with that you're one of those people who has a sin on rerun in your mind what are you going to do with that well i have three things here to say i'm I'm sure there's plenty more but i think these three are a good place to start first of all recognize that part of how sin stains you as that it creates a memory i think we just have to accept that but challenge yourself to think of that as a blessing not a curse Secondly, understand that just because you sin or have been sinned against, that does not mean you aren't a Christian. That does not mean you are any less clean than anyone else. Even the great apostle Paul said, What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Don't you just love that phrase there, thanks be to God. It's a great hinge of the Christian life. Finally, realize that God is not shocked by the ugliness of your past. David murdered Uriah. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. His baby's dead. But Jesus Christ came into this world to die for even the worst of sinners. King David's crime was great. But it doesn't even come close to the greatness of God's loving kindness and tender mercies. That truth right there changes the terrain of our Christian pilgrimage the second point this morning is that sin is against a holy God look here at verse 4 against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge now again there's two very practical lessons we can learn here from this psalm firstly you must see your sin as David does Against you, you only, God, we must all see our sin in right proportion to the holiness of God. So what that means is the way you think about your sin, it must not be compared to its consequences. The way you think about your sin must not be compared to what other people think. Instead, the way you think about your sin must be compared to the holiness of God. Remember Nathan? What did he say to David? He said, you have despised the commandment of the Lord and to do what is evil in his sight. In his sight. So the underlying question here, I guess, is what makes sin, sin? It's that it dishonours the holiness and righteousness of God. David says, against you, you only, God. Notice he doesn't say against Uriah, I have sinned. Against Bathsheba, I have sinned. Because after all, who was Uriah, but the man God created? Who was Bathsheba, but the woman God created? I have sinned against you, a holy and righteous God. And that is why this psalm says that God is blameless when he judges. You see, David's sense of sin against others increased his sense of sin against God. Did you catch that? David's sense of sin against others increases his sense of sin against God. Secondly, we must confess our sins. David says against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He's confessing. He's just getting it all out there on the table. We must be willing to confess our sin and take responsibility for it. I want you to look at something real quick. Think back to Genesis, if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, God comes and he catches up with Adam. To paraphrase, he comes along and says, Adam, where are you? Adam was hiding, because he was scared. Why are you scared, Adam? Because I'm naked? Who told you you were naked, Adam? You ate from the tree, didn't you? And what does Adam say? That woman, God, she made me do it. I mean, I was here, I was doing my yard work, I'm naming the animals. You actually put me to sleep. Out of my rib, you make this woman. And she's fine, she's better than anything else you put on the earth. But she made me do it. So God goes along to Eve and he says, well, what do you have to say for yourself? And what does Eve do? That serpent, God that you put in the garden. He made me do it. It's a blame game. It's continually passing the buck. It's a hospital pass. You want to take it, one f- you want to take it a lot further, I should say. Adolf Hitler in his book, Mein Kampf, didn't just excuse his own sin. He actually romanticised his vision of a greater mono-ethnic Germany. And his sin, were not checked, as we all know, led to the mass genocide of over 6 million Jews in the Holocaust of World War II. That's a massive example, I know, but I just want you to know that that is how far down the road you can go if you don't justify your sin but excuse it to yourself. You see, as humans, we have this unique ability to be able to look inside ourselves at the evil within and see it in a way that makes it not so evil to ourselves. We justify our own sin so we can clear our own conscience. You know, I hear people, I hear mates, particularly when I was at uni, Christian guys say, well, it's not like I actually slept with her. You hear people all the time say, it's just a little white light, you know, what's the big deal? Guys, we must not justify our sins or find ways to excuse it. Just confess it. Remember the surgeon? He had to cut open my arm before he could fix it. Just get it all out there on the table. Let God do his operating. David Pallison, the editor for the Journal of Biblical Counseling, has this to say. Everyone who seeks finds. fight with yourself. Don't justify the things that God names as evil. Don't despair when you find evils within yourself. The only unforgivable sin is the impenitence that justifies sin and opposes the purifying mercies of God. The third point this morning is that sin fades the joy of salvation. Look here from verse 10. Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Now, I just quickly want to share with you something that has been so helpful to me, that has so hit me like a Mack truck as, as I've read through this psalm. I remember it was back in April 2010. I was terribly upset because I was broken up with my now beautiful fiance Julie. And I was there in my college room and I was just moping in self-pity when this just really struck me. Have you ever noticed that there isn't a single mention of the word sex Anywhere in this psalm. Have you ever noticed that there isn't a single mention of the word lying or murder or deceitfulness anywhere in this psalm? And that's where all of David's problems started to begin with, wasn't it? With Bathsheba? With Uriah? Or was it? No, the Bible doesn't see it that way love what John Piper has to say he says the misuse of the beautiful gift of sex is a symptom of the disease not the disease and that's why this psalm doesn't mention it you see this psalm isn't so much a psalm of what David did or didn't do Rather, this psalm is a prayer of confession about the sinfulness of David's heart that made him do those things to begin with. What that means is that ultimately God isn't concerned with your sin list, the list of things you do and don't do. Whatever that is, whether it be things like um, gossip or drunkenness or pornography or love of money or lying or bitterness or gluttony or selfishness or pride, on and on and on, list those areas of sin off for yourself that you know you struggle with. Those are what your sin looks like when it walks and talks. But that's not the main issue. This is the main issue. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because when that joy fades, you sin. When that joy fades, you start paying more attention to that woman who is not your wife. When that joy fades, you start getting some itch for some illegitimate satisfaction. Every sin you have ever committed... Is symptomatic of the absence of this joy. Beneath any particular sin you commit is the sin of rejecting Christ's salvation and indulging in self-salvation. You see, it's not that it's not that David took Bathsheba. It's not that David murdered Uriah. It's that the joy of his salvation faded away that made him do those things to begin with. The Christian band Casting Crowns has indirectly written a song about this idea. It goes like this. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to grey. Thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. Daddies never crumble in a day. Families never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. And you know, as Christians, we like to... Uh, Put all of these different things in place to help us stop from sinning, like computer filters or a punching bag to, you know, vent our anger, or a close friend to be accountable with and share struggles with. Now, I don't have a problem with doing any of those types of things. In fact, I think they're necessary even. Very, very good things for us to do. But if that's the only way you battle your sin, you're going to lose. Because those things will never get you to the main issue. And this is the main issue. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And what is that salvation? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. O oh, precious is the flow that washed me white as snow. No other fount I know nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners who are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That we can be made right by grace through faith, which is a free gift of God. That is cause for joy. Joy on part of God, joy on part of Christ, joy on part of the angels, but how much more for you who he has died for Joy on part of you, the redeemed, the bride of Christ. David raped Bathsheba. He murdered Uriah. His baby's dead. Nathan comes along and he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? David says, I, I've sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan responds, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just like that. Rape, murder, a dead baby. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. What? I mean, are you serious? Where is the justice in any of that? Can you imagine if you were standing there and you were Bathsheba's mother? And you were next to Nathan when he said that to David? Can you imagine if you were Uriah's father when Nathan said that to David? The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Where is the justice in any of this? And then all of a sudden, with that question, you start to understand the message of the foolishness of Christ crucified because you start to realize that God hasn't done this with just David. He's done it millions and millions and millions of times for people throughout every age, tribe, nation and tongue. And then all of a sudden it gets very personal because you realise he hasn't done, done this with just other people but he's done this for you and that your forgiveness is at stake. So where is the justice? Listen to these verses. 2 Corinthians 5, one. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, so that romans eight one there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus romans three twenty five to twenty seven this is why Christ had to die. This is the justification here. God sent forth Christ as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is why David was not struck down. That is why you are not struck down because Christ was. Even the pedophile that we hear about on the news whose crimes are so heinous we can't even fathom and we are filled with righteous anger towards him, even he, if he at the end of his days repents and puts his faith in Jesus Christ, even he will be received into glory. And we don't like that. Because we compare our sins to one another as if some are better than others. That's not the way way God views things. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Christ had to die so that any of us could live. And more than just a penalty, Christ had to die to fix the problem of sin so that we may progressively each day be conformed to Christ's likeness. I love what Paul has to say to the Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Have you ever thought about that? It's truly a sad thing today that so often the gospel just gets watered down to a get-out-of-hell free card. We've been talking about this in our Bible study. The gospel does not just forgive you. It regenerates you. Like David, it says right here in this psalm, Create, creates in you a clean heart. It offers to make you sons and daughters of God. It is a message that Christ himself has now come to dwell in you. Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is cause for joy. This is the joy of your salvation. It doesn't get any better than this, guys. And by the way, this is why I'm a Christian. Because Christianity is the only religion in the entire world, it is the only worldview that has a God who comes down, steps into the script of human existence as an atonement for sins it's god's work not your work and that's why it works and this is cause for joy the fourth point this morning is that sin at its core is a worship disorder look here from verse 12 Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Guys, this is what the joy of verse 12 looks like in action. It's evangelism, verse 13, and it is praise, it is worship of God. That is the fruit of restored joy. Deliver me from blood guilt, O God, the God of my salvation, and my, my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. You see, praise to God is what your joy looks like unless there's some sin in the way. Your praise to God is is what joy looks like unless there's some sin in the way, unless there's some alternative in the way. And we all have things in the way. When I have some sin in my life and it tends to pile up like guilt, sometimes I just make up in my mind, you know, I'm I'm just not going to do that thing again. I'm never going to do it. And so I pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I just, I don't do it for a week or two, for a month, sometimes even a year. But more often than not, I'm right back at it, doing that very same thing all over again. And when I return to old sinful habits, I get this overwhelming sense of guilt. You ever notice that about yourself? I have. And when I'm filled with guilt, I don't want to pray. I don't want to read my Bible. I can't open my mouth and sing praises to God at church. I just can't reminds me of adam and eve in the garden i'm hiding behind the bushes from god you see your praise to god is what joy looks like unless there's some sin in the way unless there's some alternative in the way what this means is that if sin stops you from praising god then sin at its core is a worship disorder sin at its core is a worship disorder But I'm not just talking about the obvious areas of sin in your life. Let me take this one further. Even the very good things, the good gifts, the blessings that God gives you, if they are made into ultimate things, then they too will get in the way of you worshipping God. If you guys haven't read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, buy it this week. It's an easy read. It talks all about this idea. St. Augustine of Hippo is perhaps the first Christian thinker outside of the Bible to expound on this idea, especially in his book, The Confessions, where he defines sin as disordered love. What that means is that love is out of order. To help you understand what I mean by this, let me give you a simple example. Should you love your career? Sure. Should you have a desire to... Uh, excel and be the best that you can be promoted in your career absolutely there's nothing wrong with that should you love your family should you have a desire to foster and nurture those relationships in the context of your family absolutely but what if you love your career more than your family it's out of order What if, even if it's out of love for your family because you wanted to give them the life and the opportunities you never had growing up yourself, what if you spend more time at the office than at home? What if you spend more time on fly-in, fly-out projects than at home? What if you spend more time on business trips than at home? And even when you're at home, you're not really there because just as little Johnny wants to tell you about his soccer game around the dinner table, your mobile phone goes off. If your family always comes in second place to your work, then you have disordered your loves. And you know what's going to happen? What's going to happen is that by putting your career before your family, you will damage your family so much through neglect that ironically you will end up damaging your career to the very first thing you first loved. Another simple example of this would be when a couple has a newborn child And all their energy and attention goes into loving this beautiful blessing from God. And in the process, they neglect one another. And their relationship breaks down because of it. Who's ultimately going to suffer because of this? A child. Disordered love leads to breakdown in your life. Sin leads to breakdown in your life. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. If that's not happening for you, then you have disordered your loves. When you put things first when they should be second, or when you put things second when they should be third, you will have a breakdown in your life. Because this is what idolatry is, guys. That is why God told Moses to write it down first. Do not have any other gods before me. Because to do so is to commit idolatry. And if your life, and your life will break down because of it. And, you're, and you know, no created thing can ever bear the weight of your soul's desires. God has set eternity in the hearts of men, Solomon wrote. And no personal thing can ever quench that. That is why it is actually unloving for you to put your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend on some perfect pedestal. Because in essence, you're demanding something from them that they were never made to give you. And that is unloving. Look, I don't... Ad- I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but this is just all over the Bible and it excites me. We went there earlier, but come back to me to Genesis. I want you to understand something about the fall. What happens at the fall is all about this idea of a worship disorder. And here's the order. God creates man and he gives the man the woman. And the man and the woman have dominion over all of the beasts of the earth. God, man, woman, all the beasts of the earth. But what happens at the fall the beast deceives the woman, thus exercising dominion over the woman. The woman deceives the man, thus exercising dominion over the man. And the man grasps, gets the fruit to grasp equality with God. It has completely flipped the original creation order upside down. Move forward a few thousand years, and this is what Paul has to say to the church in Rome. He says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is to be forever praised. Amen still completely upside down but paul has hit the nail on the genesis head our sin completely reverses the original creation order you see at the heart of sin is this belief that we can quench our god-shaped god-sized thirst with man-shaped man-sized alternatives and that is false worship whatever those alternatives to christ may be for you in your life whether it's obvious areas of sin that you enjoy whether it's those good things that you have made into ultimate things like a child or even your family, when you begin to live for those things, ironically those things will end up ruling over you and things will begin to break down. I labour this point because as the old preacher once said, you cannot have a new relationship with God unless you have a new relationship with sin. Because you see, sin isn't some mere moral indiscretion or poor choice you make against God. Sin can actually be an attempt to replace God with something else. And more often than not, that's with good things that he's given us. You see, the problem with this world today isn't whatever you read about in the newspapers. The problem with this world today isn't what you hear about on the news with terrorism or world poverty. Again, that's what sin looks like when it walks and talks. The problem with this world is that we do not worship who we were created to worship. We can't because there's just too much stuff in the way and the joy of our salvation gets all but forgotten in the mix. Whatever problem is going on for you and your closest interpersonal relationships, I want to say it's a direct result of one or both of you not understanding the reality of this verse. Ladies, the problem is not what he has done or what he isn't doing. Men, the problem is not what she has done or what she isn't doing. The problem is that Jesus Christ is not magnificent enough to you and you do not worship him. You can't because there's too much stuff in the way and the joy of your salvation is all but forgotten. Jesus is to be adored. He is to be magnified. He is to be worshipped. And once you realize that your fight and struggle and wrestle against sin is a means through which you can praise God, it changes everything. So if you're here today and you're wrestling with something, know that your wrestle is actually honoring to God. It's an encouraging thought, isn't it? The fifth and final point this morning, and this will be quick, is that sin constrains your usefulness. Only if you come to this place of brokenness and cleansing like David, then and only then can you effectively pray for the people and place of Zion as he does in verses 18 and 19. Look here, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. It's as if David is praying here. Lord, despite everything I have done Continue to do good things for Zion, the place of worship and worshiping people. God, build up the walls around that place. If my sin has in any way pulled down those walls, then build them up once again. The point is this. If your sin is not washed away, if you do not have a clean heart like David, then you can't effectively pray for fellow Christians. You can't effectively evangelize the lost and ultimately you cannot please God so what's at stake here your usefulness to the lost your usefulness to the church and ultimately your usefulness to god if psalm 51 isn't a prayer of confession to your for your life then that's you now guys i don't know what areas of sin you're struggling with here today i don't know what darkness you've experienced over the years what pain you're feeling in fact, because of my age, I know much less about the realities of life and sin than the majority of you here in this room. But what I do know is this, that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible thought, isn't it? That what you will one day be like in heaven... God has already started for you in this life. He has already begun that good work in you if you're a Christian. We have a nice theological word for it. It's called sanctification, being made more like Christ today than yesterday. And what's going to get in the way of that? Maybe some death or life? How about angels or demons? How about the present, the future, or powers? Nope. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. You see this psalm here, Psalm 51? This is the way you ought to think about your sin if you're a Christian. This is the way Christian living is all about. Christianity in the real world is messy. Christianity in the real world is continued contrition and brokenness over your sin, but not to sit there and wallow in it. I'm not talking about some self-induced depression so you can feel bad. If that's what you're taking away from this morning, you haven't you have you've missed the point. Because the beauty of this picture of Psalm 51 is that David is broken. He is crushed under the weight of his sin. But God doesn't keep him there. But it's only there when he cuts himself with the blades of God's unfailing love and great compassion and exposes his sin for what it is that God, our great heavenly physician, can step in and start the healing process. This psalm ought to be a prayer of confession for your life. And as you pray it, remember that there is no sin so small that it doesn't deserve a total destruction by a holy and righteous God. But Remember as well that there is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven by the grace of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who is to be forever praised.